I'm Haley. And I'm Becky. And this is How to Not Get Killed. Yeah. What's up, guys? How's it going? How's, how's it going? It's been, it's been a week. It's been a week. It's been a week, has it? Yeah. Huh. I think so. It's been some time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a it's length been some of time. time. We've been through some shit. It's, I've seen some shit. I've been to hell and back. <laughs> <laughs> this past week. Yeah. Something else. Something happened. I don't know. To be fair, this, this episode has been recorded just a little bit in advance. So when yeah, so you actually don't even know what happened this week. Yeah. Whatever week this is. You know what? I hope I'm, it's a good week. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out like when when this episode airs, what will have happened in my life by then? Should we make predictions? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like every time I like make a prediction about something, it usually ends up like being like the exact opposite happens and like all hell breaks loose. So I'll make it I'll make a prediction super out there. Both of us will have started school again. Whoa. <laughs> yes, that's actually very true. I'll, I'll be like knee deep in like new psychology issues and all this stuff. So yeah. Yeah. I'll be I'll be researching. We'll be, mm-hmm. um, you know, try, trying to also fill time with yeah. true crime. Yeah. Because we love it. Yeah, exactly. We hope you love it too. And if you don't, you do now. We're forcing you. So. <laughs> you have no choice. You love it now. Yep. This is your new thing. Well, I feel like if someone's listening to this, it already is their thing, so. I hope so. I think the only people that might be listening that aren't super into true crime are, like, our close friends and family who are like, oh, I guess I'll listen. Yeah. Well, like, (laughs) Drew, for example, he's, like, not a big true crime person. He also, like, doesn't have a choice. He edits the episodes, so he has to listen. You should hear how he edits, though. It's, like, it's very frustrating. I don't know how sound editors do it. Like, there are certain things that he has to listen to, like, on a loop over and over and over again while he edits it. Like, so, for oh, example, yeah. like, there are times where, like, if I make, like, a weird sound, I'll hear it 800 times in a row, and then I have to, like, sit there rocking back and forth crying, thinking, like, wow, I sound so stupid. But that it's just him, like, Like a nightmare. That sounds like my nightmare. Yeah. Well, like, the, the first episode we did together, he, he was editing it, and he was, like, fixing the audio on, like, your laugh for a while there. So, like, for, for like... Oh, fixing it? He was fixing my laugh? Yeah, he was, like, this is the ugliest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> No, I, that was when I sent you the Snapchat and I said how he said that you had like a really like nice rhythmically timed laugh. And he was like, it's perfect because you can like see like the spikes of it going up and down. That's my impression. Yeah, that was like the weirdest and nicest compliment I think I've ever received where it's like you have a well-timed laugh. Yeah. No, he said it was perfect <laughs> and it was like the same rhythm and it just like matched. and It was perfect. All right. Well, great. I'll, cr- I'll yeah. try to I'll try to stay on rhythm. Yeah. Drew. Yeah. You have to. You don't have a choice now. <laughs> but yeah. I don't even know where we were going with that. But anyways, yeah, he yeah. hates, well, he doesn't hate true crime. He just, like, doesn't care. Yeah. So, too bad. He has to listen to it anyways. Fair. I'm, like, Fair behind enough. him with a gun to his head. Like, listen to this. I'm out. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I feel like the other day I, with the Annabelle one, um, I, it was my first case. So, like, writing it out and everything. I turned to Luke and almost like I didn't say it, but I was like, oh, thinking in my head, I'm like, I could read it to him and then like practice it. Yeah. And then I was like, <laughs> I didn't even ask him because I'm like, he's going to be like, hell no. I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to know about it. Oh, because yeah, he doesn't like scary movies, no, right? No, oh. at all. What if, can I, uh, Luke, close your ears. Can I like trick him into like 
watching a scary movie with me? Um, how would the tricking happen though? I mean, once like, it starts, I got this comedy. It's gonna be fucking great. You're See, gonna. He love doesn't it. even really watch a lot of comedies. But I feel like I could persuade him. Okay, you could. I just uh, it's gonna be tricky once once it's started. Well, we strap him down. <laughs> I and actually we do the have... clockwork orange thing where we like peel his eyes open. <laughs> watch this. <laughs> um, I actually we've struck a deal. Um, okay. being, you know, where he would prefer to watch zero horror movies and I would prefer to watch them every day of my life. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you'll think this is kind a of good deal, deal is that? <laughs> but, um, he's agreed to watch two horror movies a year with me. I, okay. You know what? That's actually, that's not bad. I felt like that was a fair offer. I made that offer. He, he agreed to it. Yeah. Because I'm like, you know, uh, I'll watch them on my own. And then if I have like a sleepover or something with like a friend like you or something, I'm that's the first thing I'm going to suggest. I'd be like, look, I can't watch these very often at home. Yeah. Even if like <laughs> he's in the room, like he he will just sort of like put his headphones in and not pay attention. Mm -hmm. But I still feel bad because I mean, I'm watching like the exorcist show, the one on Netflix. And okay. I feel like every time he like just kind of glances up, it's like some demonic person like screaming <laughs> like, in like the this? screen and like, you know, <laughs> running rabid and yeah <laughs> and i feel like i'm scarring him a little bit yeah so i feel bad even like watching them around him mm. i'll watch them on a day when like he's not there or something like that so you're so I, kind i know i'm the best partner ever yeah, it's true it's true yeah just so that's like watching any movies with me. that's our deal on on my birthday last year like the new adam sandler movie had come out which yes i get it everybody hated it i fucking loved it i still but, haven't seen it i'm sorry i'll watch it with you thank you again but it literally aired on Netflix on my birthday. And I was like, you know what? This year, all I want is to watch Hubie Halloween. I don't care how bad everyone thinks it is. I fucking loved it. It's Adam Sandler and I love everything he does. And Drew the entire time was like making fun of it. And I was like, today's the one day. Today is the one day you do not get to do this. And he's like, okay, okay, I'll wait till tomorrow. I'll wait. But then like five minutes would pass and he'd be like, this is just so fucking ridiculous. And I was like, hey, get the fuck out. You're ruining my birthday. I hate this. Everybody has that situation where this has happened a couple of times with me and Luke, where like it's your day for whatever reason, whether it's your birthday or it's like you've had a crap day or like uh, this happened when I finished ex uh, exams the uh, last year. And um, I'm, you know, it was like my day and we're celebrating like any situation where Luke's like, we can watch whatever you want. And I'm like, you're going to regret that. Yeah. I'm like, mamma mia. Mamma mia too. Let's do it. <laughs> mamma mia seven. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I told you on my birthday, I made him watch Crazy Stupid Love. And he actually liked he it. So it. you know what? That's what happens. Suck it. Yeah. 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 I have good mm -hmm. taste in movies. Yeah. You, d you do. You really do. Thank you. Do. you. You're good. <laughs> oh. All, All right. right. Well. On that note. Let's, uh, on that note, Mamma Mia. <laughs> Crazy stupid Mama love. Mia. Let's dive All right, right so into anyways, this murder. <laughs> dark, dark case. Let's do it. <laughs> so for any of you true crime lovers out there, mm -hmm. Becky included. Okay. Um, That's me. I, I am pretty confident in saying that most of you, if not all of you, have probably never heard of this case. So I actually I was, haven't. you know that I, I was with Becky at, an, at the airport mm -hmm. and I bought this book. It was called Out of Thin Air. And um, the book is written by Anthony Ad Anthony Adine. So this is where I got most of my information from. And there is also a documentary on Netflix called Out of Thin Air. Okay. We'll um, add all of this into the show notes too, by the way. That yeah. Way. Yeah. Because yeah. this is where I got all of my information because um, the documentary uh, is great. The book has 
so much information. Um, I've said to Becky multiple times that I found it really hard to condense some of this information because the book is just, I would highly recommend any of you that are interested, if you, if you listen to this case and you're like, wow, that's that's interesting, buy the book because there's a million yeah. times more <laughs> information in the book and it really gives you like a nice history of, so this case takes place in Iceland mm -hmm. in the 70s. So it gives you a really nice um, uh, sort of layout of like even history of Iceland and some Nordic culture history. Um, it sets up just the time period in Iceland and why the sort of the place that people in Iceland were in in the 70s, why it affects this case so much and why Iceland itself as a country um, is so unique. Like it's it's an island in the 70s. The population was 220,000 people. So oh. again, this is sort of it was described in the documentary as like Iceland was almost like a village. Like hmm. you kind of knew. Yeah. Um, like you know think about like where we're from London yeah um and it's like almost 400,000 people and sometimes it still feels like a small town yeah. where like everyone knows everyone so imagine I mean half that population yeah. on an island right so it would feel tight mm -hmm. the unique setting of Iceland is what makes this case I think partly so interesting so um the book does a really really good job of of laying out that part of it and and the setting but also just again a lot a lot more detail that i just cannot <laughs> tell all of you about or else this episode would be four hours long but um would highly recommend the book yeah. and the documentary as well it's only I, an hour and a half so you can just kind of and i totally it. know what you mean because like i had that that's what i had with like my eileen warnos case where it was like i had so much information that like i didn't know where to like cut it yeah where i was like okay well i either give too too little information because i'm trying to keep it short and sweet or I give so much information that it's like literally like a 10 parter. Yeah. Where's the happy medium? And it's mm -hmm. just like, and then you also don't want to like just go and like rip off these amazing books and just like. Yeah. Read yeah. it word for word. But it's like, okay, well. It's really hard when you read a book about the case. If you're sort of just researching it and um, you're getting yeah. articles and stuff, then you can kind of pick and choose. Yeah. But when you read a book and it's to me out of so thin detailed. air is so well written, yeah. so well researched um every single sentence is feels important, important to yeah. me right it's so, so yeah it's so hard yeah so anyways anthony adine mm -hmm. um and the documentary is um directed by dylan howitt so just wanted to give credit to those two sources that's what i used perfect so basically um it's described in the book and in the documentary that every icelander knows about this case mm. even though it took place in the 70s um people you know of our generation some people like know the details of it as well as their parents who lived through it it's kind of been written into like almost myth and legend in iceland mm. um and in pop culture like there's just a lot i don't know anyone anyone from iceland so if anyone from iceland ever listens to this episode i, I know or anyone if anyone listening knows someone from iceland or has family there ask them about this case guaranteed yeah. they will know it um so it basically it was the biggest criminal case in iceland in in the last century um and iceland doesn't have a hugely high rate of violent crime uh, i think at that point in the 70s they maybe had one murder a year hmm. that was what was estimated that's and that's that's really low um and again yeah the population was uh, around two hundred twenty thousand people in the 70s hmm. um and reykjavik is the capital so that's where most of 
most most people you know live and work but there's okay. also lots of small towns around iceland where um some of the stuff takes place hmm. um so they said you know in the 70s again iceland kind of felt like a village where you knew almost everyone and it it felt like a safe community with very little crime um a lot of people didn't have a ton of exposure to life outside of iceland which like how would you right like yeah like you know flights were starting to become more affordable so they were saying at this time young icelanders you know some of them did go off to europe or go to america to you know travel a little bit but this was kind of just starting yeah and also in the 70s as most people know there was the rise of you know hippie culture mm, and yes, yes so familiar iceland it sounds like was you know no different than some other places where um there was a lot of sort of people were traveling a little bit and bringing back that part you know of culture. culture fashion yeah. music New especially from everything. the states right yeah. and um one of our main players in this case um her name is erla so um she basically says you know people were smoking hash and discussing politics and mm. like it was kind of that hippie culture that like you're mine. we're all yeah. picturing from the 70s and stuff so erla um um in 1974 was 18 and she was born in iceland both of her parents um are icelandic and she met um saivar silseski oh that's a mouthful uh yes at a party and so saivar uh, grew up in iceland but um his father was mm -hmm. american okay um with polish a polish background hence the last name <laughs> so um in Iceland, basically, the book explains that people um, get their last name by combining the first name of their father with either right. son or daughter, whether you're a male or a female. So hypothetically, like, my name's Haley and my dad's name is Bill. So my last name, if I was Icelandic, would be Haley Bill's daughter. Yeah. Or if I was a boy, Haley Bill's son. So because Sivar didn't have obviously an Icelandic last name um, and like 95% of people living in Iceland at this time were Icelandic. Yeah. He was always throughout his whole life kind of um, the singled sheep. out. Yeah. yeah. He was, he, it was just noticeable. He was foreign. He had like a different look. Erla describes him as, you know, having like dark hair and Slavic eyes. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, she was like, he looked different. His last name was different. Hmm. Um, those weirdos yeah well she says you know he was people were drawn to him um because as, he's different yeah that, yeah then he was charismatic and everything and so she met him at a party um and they basically i mean this is the 70s so she said that they were at a party and she realized that her drink had been spiked with lsd oh fun fun yeah that's always a good time when you great just surprise too surprise late drugs that. surprise surprise you're now on lsd <laughs> whether you like it or not yeah and um she kind of connected with saivar who he was like yeah i think someone spiked everyone's drink and they were like well, okay we'll just stay together and we'll kind of ride this out yeah and and we'll like like help each other through it yeah because i think that it's probably safe to say i've never done lsd before it's probably safe to say that if you realize without you know giving permission <laughs> that you're now on lsd i feel like that would be pretty freaky so they It'd were just jarring, like we're sure. gonna hold on to each other we'll stay in this corner we'll just chat all night yeah. we'll like help each other through we'll it. have a good we'll have a good ride yeah also by the way like i'm realizing now that the storm is about to like break loose on our windows so if you hear <laughs> rain yeah. and thunder in the background 
it's okay. It's gonna add to the spooky. It's gonna add to the uh, the atmosphere, the chilling vibes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We plan this. Yeah, I, I like. It's gonna storm tonight. We I have to record the podcast. Up some weather for you guys <laughs> <laughs> with my mythical powers. <laughs> so, yeah, Becky basically. is God. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't say it. I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah well this is we we have called this a cult before so anyways you're our leader yeah it wouldn't be shocking if i was just like (laughs) i am lord now (laughs) so with saivar the story was that he hung around with a group of you know like thugs Mm. delinquents whatever you want to call them those hooligans they all hooligans they all came from kind of like broken (laughs) homes they all dropped out of school a lot of them were you know had been in jail for like petty crimes and things like that so when Erla and Saivar connected at this party, they talked all night. She said, like, it felt like she had never met someone who understood her the way that he did. They basically mm. fell in love, infatuation, all of that stuff. So um, from that point on, they were basically inseparable. But Erla's family was not happy because he was regarded as a troublemaker. And they were like, we don't want you hanging around him. But she was 18. So she basically left her family and, wants, and yeah. got together with Saivar. So that kind of sets up Erla and Saivar in this um in this situation yeah. so um january 26 1974 okay um there is a young man named goodmunder 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 anerson um he was 18 years old and i am so sorry because i might butcher some of these names might? of Icelandic certainly <laughs> places or <laughs> names but um so he was from blessugroff if we ever pronounce anything wrong, please email please us, spell it out phonetically, and yell at us. We'd love that. T- yeah, please tell me. I'm <laughs> going to do my best, but... Um, I, I won't be able to do it. So this like, is I, I mean, I, I watch Vikings. That's yeah. the best uh, like l- lesson in pronunciation yeah. I'm going to get. <laughs> I might make insulting jokes about pronunciation, so nobody take it personally. No. So he was from Blessugroff, um, but he was uh, with a friend, uh, his friend Sigurbjorn. That's, um, that's also a mouthful. It's a mouthful. Sigurbjorn. Yeah. Sigurbjorn? I can't um, <laughs> So he, his friend had a party at his house on January 26th, which, which was a Friday. Okay. Um, and then later they went to a club in... Okay. Here we go. Here ha- we go. Hafnarfjordr. Hafnarfjordr. Yeah. You know what? Nailed it. Perfect. Thank you. If you could see it, that's exactly how it's spelled. Perfect. There um, you go. You're good. <laughs> so they went to a club. It, it, I'm assuming it's just another town yeah. not far away. Yeah. So uh, I guess um, Sigurd Bjorn said that they all started dancing with girls and blah, blah, blah. And then when they were leaving, they couldn't find Goodmunder anywhere. So they just assumed he had left early and not told them. Um, around 2 a.m., so this would now be January 27th because okay. it's like sat- early Saturday morning. Yeah. Two witnesses who were acquaintances of Goodmunder. So like they knew they knew him. Okay. Um, they reported seeing him walking along the side of the road with another man that they didn't recognize. This man was wearing a yellow shirt. That's the description that they gave. Okay. Um, and Goodmunder had his hand out to like flag down a car, like to hitchhike home. Okay. And um, they slowed down to give him a lift. But when he saw who they were and he recognized them, he just shoved his hand back in his pocket and then kept walking. Um, and so it was pretty apparent he didn't want to ride from them because he knew them. And again, they didn't recognize this guy. So they started speeding up. The guy that he was with, like, stumbled and, like, literally landed on the hood of their car. Oh. And then and then just, like, rolled off of it and they just sped off. And so... Okay, so they... 
they just did a hit and run? No, like he got up. He rolled <laughs> off of it. Oh, like, oh he, he just, got up. It's totally fine. It's not a hit. They run. were basically saying like when we saw him, it, appear, it appeared that Goodmunder and this guy were both drunk, like both super drunk. Okay. Um, And so the guy kind of fell on the hood of their car when they were slowing down and then he got up and they were like, okay. So they just kept driving. Weird. Um, okay. And then someone else spotted Goodmunder around um, between 2 and 3 a.m. at a stoplight. And he also said he was stumbling and drunk. He, the witness said he was alone this time. Um, but he was trying to stop cars. So, like, assumingly to get a ride. Um, when the light turned green, the witness drove off. And um, presumably the last person to see Goodmunder um, ever. No one um, has come forward and said that they saw him after 3 a.m. on this night. Oh. And... Um, so by Monday, okay. his friend Sigurbjorn uh, got a call from another friend asking if he had seen Goodmunder, asking yeah. if he knew where he was. And so he said no. He said we, we couldn't find him at the club on Saturday sure. and we just assumed he went home. Yeah. So by Tuesday, everyone was pretty concerned, um, his parents and, uh, and his family and his friends. So a rescue team of 200 people was put together and they searched all day Tuesday until dark. And, and it does describe in the book in in Iceland at this time, especially in the seventies, like the police forces were small. Like these yeah. rescue teams were civilians. They yeah, were people who knew yeah, in the area sense. who knew the terrain and stuff, but they all, they were like all volunteer local, civilians, right? Yeah, volunteers, yeah. Um, so in the documentary as well. And in the book, they do describe that. Um, you have to understand that the weather in Iceland changes very quickly. So they're saying like, it could be sunny in the morning and then you could have heavy snow in the afternoon. Um, and oftentimes people couldn't predict this and they would get stuck or they would get lost. So on the night uh, Goodmunder disappeared, it was two degrees Celsius with a strong wind um, and a storm had swept in unexpectedly overnight. Okay. So by the morning, everything was covered in a layer of snow. So oh. you couldn't even track like footprints, Nothing. Um, yeah. anything like that, right? So it was definitely difficult and they were worried because... Um, going from the town where the club was in to his hometown where he lived, they said making this walk would have been extremely dangerous even now, but especially in 1974. Right. Especially if he was drinking. Um, the the town where the club was in is located on top of a 7,000-year-old lava field, um, and his most likely route home would have been a shortcut across an uninhabited area where um, the uneven ground is pocketed with deep trenches. Oh, shit. So I think at this point, a lot of people were assuming he was drunk. Oh, he was it. trying to walk home in the dark in a storm and fell somewhere, got stuck. That like awful. Yeah. And so that's kind of what people are thinking at this point. Yeah. So this is January 1974. We'll jump forward to August of 1974. Okay. Um, back to Erla and Saivar. So okay. at this point... Um, Saivar had basically like said to Erla, like uh, he, they, he talked about how he wanted to like commit a crime. Um, because again, he had been sort of a petty criminal up until this point. He wanted to commit a crime that like the authorities couldn't prove and that would like leave them clueless and all the stuff. And he talked to her how he like wanted to do this. And so how do people like, you know, I think kind of like almost like a Bonnie and Clyde thing. I okay. don't know, but Erla worked at um, a post office. And so. She, said, she came up with a plan to commit, theft. <laughs> yeah, to commit basically or like embezzlement. the Grinch where he's like, jury duty, jury duty, blackmail, blackmail. <laughs> That's like what I pictured. <laughs> <laughs> basically, yeah. <laughs> so she came up with a plan. I don't like fully, I think you might have to understand like how money transfers worked in the 70s to fully understand this, why this plan worked, but it did work. 
Um, so they tampered with the telephones to make it sound like they were calling long distance. So they put like sheets over it and stuff, whatever. Because again, this is the 70s. And okay. that's all. <laughs> literally, if you called long distance, I guess it just sounded like you were really far away. <laughs> yeah, it's long distance. So you have to sound, sound long. really far away. <laughs> so she called the office that she worked at saying she had a postal order and read out five different telephone money tran- um, transmission numbers. Okay. And so I guess she said it would get processed and sent to the main postal office downtown and then you would go and pick up the money order. So again, I don't know exactly how that worked, like how they would come up with these money order numbers, but she obviously, she worked at the post office, so she knew and how it worked. Clearly thought, and like, they would get this like money transfer sent to a different post office and they would go and pick up the physical money. Okay. So um, they did this a few times between August and October of 1974 and they embezzled just under 1 million kroner, which um, would have been around ten thousand dollars us in the 70s which would be close to fifty thousand dollars today yeah so a decent chunk of money yeah like quite a good you know especially for two people who don't have a lot of money so it says that they checked into a posh hotel Um, yeah they did they put a down payment on a white mustang with green stripes hell yeah they did (laughs) and they ate beef and only beef for three weeks straight hell no (laughs) I mean, no. I don't know. <laughs> My I'm stomach honestly, was like, mm, like, 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 like I, re- I was researching this case and I turned to Luke when I, cause he's been to Iceland and I was like, do they have cows in Iceland? <laughs> is that like, is beef like a yeah. really like, I don't know. Maybe and in the 70s it? they couldn't get a lot of beef. I don't, I don't know. Um, or maybe, maybe they that's just like why. really like steak. Maybe like yeah, for sure. I love steak. And so but maybe they were just like, that was a luxury to get like good quality beef. And they were like, we're going to eat beef for three weeks straight. So that's we what they did with their money. have a broccoli piece at least somewhere in there. Yeah. You're going to get scurvy. Ah, it was only three weeks. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> November 19th, 1974. So okay. we've just jumped ahead another month or so. Whoa. Time travel. So a 32 year old man named Gerfinner. Gerfinner. Anerson. So okay. same last name as our first guy, but that just means that their fathers had the same first name. First name. So they had no relation. Don't worry, it's not confusing at all, they were guys. Not, <laughs> they were not related, but it doesn't matter. We'll just go by first name. So okay. Goodmunder was the first one. This is Gerfinner. So he was a 13-year-old man from Keflavik. 13. Okay. 13. Did I say 13? 32. <laughs> what? 32. Okay. Did I say 13? You said 13. <laughs> And I was like, a 13-year-old man. Wow, they, they take adulthood seriously over yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, you're just a child and then you're an adult. You said yeah. 13 or or I'm hearing things. No, I think I said 13. I wasn't expecting you to be like, no, no, I'm so sorry, 57. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. You I'm delirious. <laughs> okay, so he was a 32-year-old man. Okay. From Keflavik. And um, he was hanging out with his friend um, watching television. And his friend went to leave around 10 p.m. And he said, hey, I'm, I have to meet some people at the Harbor Cafe. Could you drop me off? Okay. So his friend was like, sure. Um, witnesses say that Gerfainer did come in. Um, but he kind of looked around and there was no one else there. So presumably whoever he was supposed to meet wasn't there. So he went home and he, he got home at 10.15. So it must have been close. Close by. Um, and... Shortly after he came home, the phone rang. His son answered the phone and said there was a man on the other end asking to speak to his dad. Okay. So he gave um, Gerfinner the phone and his son says he ov- he heard his dad say, well, I already came. And then he paused and said, okay, I'm coming. So he hangs up the phone and he goes to leave and his son asks where he's going and he okay. won't tell him. He says, can I come with you? And he says, no. 
So Garfinner leaves um, and he doesn't come home that night. The next day, his car is discovered um, near the Harbor Cafe with the igni- uh, the key still in the ignition. Oh, suspicious. Yeah. So right off the bat, um, police are sort of like, this looks more like a crime. Like an abduction. As opposed sort? to Goodmunder's disappearance where they're like, it could have been an accident, could, right? Yeah, it could have been. Um, and and Gearfinner was described as a good man with no enemies. His wife said he was not um angry or violent ever she said in a whole decade of marriage she saw him get angry once and he did not lash out he just became silent and kind of waited for his anger to pass like he wasn't that kind of person um and every she said everyone liked him and it was it it was not like him to disappear like this so in the documentary and the books and stuff they're saying that uh you know it wouldn't have been uncommon for say like a man maybe a woman too in iceland but they were saying like like a husband to like go out drinking Mm -hmm. and then just get like super drunk and then just like stumble off and like (laughs) come back in a couple of days sleep in a ditch and come back (laughs) yeah and like it had happened i guess but with people but i think more with people who were like who drank a lot yeah and they were just like oh yeah he'll be back in a couple of days gearfinner was not like that so that's why she's saying this isn't like him he's never done that before and you know like your your spouse's behavior too like yeah you you know that exactly for sure so and he didn't say he was meeting. Like there was a lot of suspicious things around this. So yeah, um, the they start they started another search. They searched the docks, the harbor, everywhere in the area. Um, witnesses that worked at the cafe said that a man did come in and ask for change for the payphone. Um, and they're assuming that this is the man who made the call to Gearfinner. And so from those witnesses, mm. a local artist created a a clay statue oh not of, a, not a sketch no 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 a clay statue of of the man's face i feel like isn't that harder than just doing a sketch uh maybe maybe this artist was like i only do clay <laughs> <laughs> i you know i don't See, know i can i can get you an image but it's gonna be in clay form yeah which, I, don't, I don't know <laughs> i mean any other people who've worked with clay before it, uh, like i can't make a, a statue I can hardly make mugs, guys, and I and I make <laughs> mugs. Like, <laughs> well, he was pretty confident. So, based on the description, they did a clay a clay statue of this man's face. It's um, actually like super impressive. Yeah, I mean, you can Google it. There's pictures of it. I'm gonna Google it. <laughs> and uh, the the witnesses at the cafe that worked there said that he, um, they would have recognized him if he was a local. So they were like, he was an out of towner. Like, okay. We didn't know who he was. Yeah. Um. So. So again, they searched, they couldn't find any leads. They had no information to go off of other than just these two witnesses and this Mm -hmm. mysterious man who made the phone call. So in um, 1975, they closed the case. Um, So jumping back to Erla and Saivar, we're now at um, September 1975. Erla gives birth to uh, a child, her and Saivar's child. So Gearfinner went missing november 1974 so we've jumped ahead to like september almost 1975 a later, almost yeah. a year yeah and Erla at this point was like i have a baby now like i don't want to be involved in crime like i don't want yeah my child to be raised in an environment like this kind of thing mm-hmm. um and she was that mustang yeah no more beef <laughs> she was 20 years old at the time so she's still incredibly young yeah um and again she wasn't really in contact with her family and friends and stuff so and they um, didn't approve of saivar really no so. no um, Cyber and his friends were, were known to the police as again, being part of this like sort of criminal underworld. Um, and most had been in prison for petty crimes and some violence. So 
Jumping forward a, a couple of months to December 12th, 1975, Saivar is arrested. The next day, December 13th, Erla is arrested for the embezzlement that they committed. And that was the original. Wild ride of beef. Yes. <laughs> yes. The beef train. <laughs> the beef train. <laughs> beef daddies. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they were brought to Sidimuli prison in Reykjavik. Okay. So Reykjavik is the capital of Iceland. Um, which is a holding facility for suspects awaiting trial. Okay. Um, Erla says she was she was arrested and put in a cell, and she was freaking out because she had a, like a four month old baby at the time, right? Yeah. So she that's... she was just freaking out because she didn't want to leave her her child. Rightfully so. And the next day, the police tell her that they can actually hold her in custody for thirty days, and they're going to on suspicion of this embezzlement. So again, she freaks out. Yeah. They send her back to her cell. They leave her there for six days before they interrogate her again. Um, so like, she's just in like pure torment. Yeah. And But like also, don't yeah. fucking steal money. No, no, I agree. I totally agree. Um, but <laughs> like, I yeah. get where she's coming from, but at the same time, you did the crime. You do the crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> but she was like, I wanted to start a new life and then now I got arrested for it. Well, then you got to clear out your fucking skeletons in your closet before <laughs> the kid comes. So during um, the questioning about the um, embezzlement, they told her that Sivar had said that she, that Erla had committed the entire crime on her own. Damn. And so she was inclined to believe him, or to, sorry, believe the the police because Erla and Sivar at this point were kind of like living together. They had a baby together, but they weren't necessarily, they agreed to just be friends and to not be in a relationship anymore because, um, like, again, Erla wanted to separate herself from that life. Okay. Sivar had cheated on her with, like, a number of different women. So fucking bitch. she's sort of like, I guess I can believe that he's throwing me under the bus right now. Fair. I right? would, I'd, I'd probably think the same thing. Yeah. Because we know that tactic. Sometimes we've seen, in like, shows and movies where they're like, oh, your partner told me everything. And they didn't. Yeah. So I think they were kind of pulling that. But she was like, I believe you. He's a piece of shit. <laughs> like, he would do that. <laughs> You're like, yeah, he fucking sucks. So, um, so yeah. So she, she believed them. She... She just told them everything. She was like, I just, like you said, she wanted to start a new life. She mm -hmm. truly wanted a clean slate. She told them everything about the embezzlement, like anything, anything else illegal that she knew that was going on. And she said she felt relieved. She wanted to like pay the price for this crime and then, and then be able to move on from it. Yeah. And so um, basically at the very end of one of her questioning, one of the police officers was like, oh, by the way, do you know a guy by the name of Goodmunder Anerson? And Erla said, yeah, I get it. I met him at a party a couple of years ago. And, um, but I, I never saw him after that. Huh. And so, um, again, Erla was, they said they could keep her for 30 days and that they would. So she's gone through a number of interviews at this yeah. point. So during one of the interviews, um, she said she was questioned for hours about the entire year of like 1974, the whole year, just about everything also, like, remember, this is the end of 1975. So this is, like, not even the past year of her life. It's the year before. The previous year. Which, like, I can't even remember what I did last week. No, I can't remember what I, like, I have ate to, for like, dinner last night. <laughs> me, I'm like, oh, my God, where the fuck was I last night? <laughs> I didn't even know. Like, where oh am my I God, right now? Where are we? <laughs> um, <laughs> is this real life? I'm, like, freaking out. <laughs> so, yeah. So she's being, and she said they're singling in closer and closer around the weekend of January 27th, 1974. Okay. And, and this is when Goodmunder had gone. That's when Goodmunder went. That's the day, the night he went missing. Okay. So she says they're, they're zeroing in on that weekend, but they're asking me about the whole year. And then they're kind of getting closer and closer to that. And so through some of these interviews, she ended up telling them 
um, about a nightmare that she had. And so she said she had a nightmare that, you know, she got home on a, like a stormy night. She went to bed. Um, and then she heard voices outside of her window and she recognized the voices of two men that Sivar hung out with. And, um, she said she was scared in her nightmare because Sivar had brought them over a couple of weeks prior and he told her not to talk to them because they were dangerous and violent men. And so in her okay. nightmare, she just felt like trapped Unsafe. and scared yeah. because these guys were there and then she woke up. And so the investigator leans over and he says, something terrible happened that night in that apartment. You witnessed it, but you can't remember it because it was too traumatic. Go back to your cell and try to remember what happened. What? So this all started because she told him about a nightmare and that's it. And so that's like my, that's my worst fear is someone being like, no, your nightmare was actually real. Yeah. <laughs> now go think about it. I'd be like, whoa. And so she goes back and she's lying in the cell, right? Like, remember, she's alone and you have a lot of time to think and yeah. a lot of time for your mind to just spin. And and when your mind spins, it fills in blanks. Yeah. And so like she's on its own. She's wondering, like, did was that nightmare real? Like, did it did did something happen? I don't remember it. I'm am I repressing something? She said that. Basically, she remembers having conversations with the investigators about a series of possibles where they were like, is it possible that it could have been that weekend that Saivar brought these guys over instead of two weeks prior? Like, could it have been the weekend of January 27th? I don't like when they do that. Is it possible that you could be um, repressing a memory? And she was like, yeah, I mean, it's Like anything's possible. Anything is possible, right? So she's talking about all of these hypothetical situations. Which that's not... Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. I'll, I'll save my reservations. About yeah. That yeah. For of now. course. <laughs> so, um, on December 20th, so remember they were brought in on December 12th and 13th on December right. 20th. Um, Erla signs a statement saying that on the night of January 27th, 1974, she saw Sivar, his friend Christian and a third person she didn't recognize, uh, carrying something large and heavy in a bag. Uh, it looked like a body, but she didn't see it. And later, later, Saivar came in and put her to bed, and she said she would deny ever seeing anything. Uh, the police go and search the apartment. There was no evidence um, or DNA or anything. And again, remember, this had been almost two years yeah. since Goodmunder's disappearance. Um, after, Erla is released. Um, the police call her and say that Saivar um, made a statement that's basically in line with hers in detail. So on December 22nd, Saivar signs a statement saying that him... Goodmunder and his two friends Christian and Trigvi had all come back to his apartment and argument had broken out and it ended in Goodmunder's death. They called their friend Albert who had um he brought his dad's car over cuz none of them had a car. Mm-hmm. Um they put the body in the trunk. They took it out to the lava fields and buried it. So whenever I hear like true crime stories where they're like, so an argument had broke out and then all of a sudden this person's dead. I'm like, what are you fucking arguing about? Yeah. No, I like know. the arguments I have with people, I'm never like, this is ending in one of our murders. <laughs> like, it, yeah. And I'm sorry, but like, I have to say like, dudes. It's true. Um, if, if we were in a room <laughs> with like four women and we all get into an argument, like we're like just chattering each other to death. Like we're just like, yeah. no, 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 you, you fucking <laughs> yeah, bitch. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not killing anybody. I'm no. killing with my words maybe. Yeah. But like I just think 
again, I'm not trying to like just blanket an entire gender, <laughs> but I feel like dudes are more inclined to get into um, a situation where they're now fighting and it's like yeah. a pride thing. And now they're like, and again, and, and, and again, yeah. maybe an accidental thing where you didn't mean to kill somebody, but you got into a fight with them. But also and someone too, hit like, their head you, or something. You're accidentally killing someone like, well, that's a big old whoopsie. Uh, like, yeah, yeah. Like, big mistake. <laughs> oops. Didn't mean to. <laughs> Um, so one of the men named by both Saivar and Erla Christian, he was serving a six month sentence for theft, um, in prison at this point. And so he was brought to Sidimuli for questioning. Um, his lawyer, um, remembers receiving a call from Christian saying, I'm being accused of murder. Like you need to help me. Okay. So on December 23rd, Christian, Trigvi and Albert were all summoned to the prison. Uh, Christian and Trigvi immediately deny any involvement or knowledge. Mm-hmm. Albert says that he had been called by Saivar and that alongside Christian and Trigvi, um, they had all put something in Albert's trunk and instructed him to drive out to the lava fields. Okay. Um, where the men took the bag, walked into the fields, they came back, the bag was gone. And on the way back, Albert asked Saivar what was in the bag and he told him it was a body. Mm. So on December 28th, so we're just jumping ahead a few days at a time here. <laughs> Christian gives a statement over the course of a six-hour interrogation saying that there was a fight in the apartment, but he had no part in it. Um, He had been drinking a lot that night. He was on meds um, from the doctors, and he wasn't supposed to be drinking, but he was drinking, so he was, like, super messed up. Mm. Um, And the next thing he knew, he was... um, Albert was there with his car, and they were driving out to the lava fields. Whenever someone's like, and next thing I knew, (laughs) it's like, oh, so you killed the guy. Yeah, he blacked out. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Next thing I knew, there was like four people dead. (laughs) I don't know what happened. happened. From A to B, anything. I'm holding a spatula. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So as soon as the interrogation was over, Christian was taken out to the lava fields to look for the body, but nothing was found. So like, I know when you're saying lava fields, it's like probably like a regular field it's not like i'm picturing <laughs> boiling no, no, no. rolling like waves of lava well, remember that iceland has volcanoes so like there have been eruptions but this lava would be long Sexual eruption. <laughs> <laughs> this, this lava would be um solidified by now so okay. yeah so they're it's not, not just hot trudging lava. through no. fucking lava because <laughs> they're like get out there <laughs> go we're gonna bury this Find body because it's not burned to a crisp by now um so on on January third, um, so we we're past Christmas now. January third, nineteen seventy six. So did they all just like take a little crime break and celebrate Christmas, or like... no? No, actually, the police said that they were working a day and night over Christmas. Those poor police officers to get these confessions. Well, they got to do what they got to do. Yeah. So uh, on January third, Christian gives a more detailed statement. And so the thing is, is that every time they interview. Christian, um, his role becomes a little bit more prominent in mm. the in the murder. At first, he was like, I saw the fight, but I wasn't part of it. Then he's sort of like, oh, yeah, I was part yeah, of it. I, I hit it. him, <laughs> all the stuff, right? So um, January 9th, Trigvi says the fight took place between Christian and Goodmunder. Um, and that, you know, the man then hit Trigvi and he hit him back. And then, like, Saivar kicked him in the head. And that's how, like, he killed him, I guess. Whoa. So, again, they're all giving these sort of, like, slightly different accounts, but slightly yeah. in line. Even though they're all, like, changing. And, like, um, kicking someone in the head? Like, that's, that's like, you. first of all, your leg has to get all the way up there. Well, no, I think he was on the ground. Oh. 
Yeah, then I think that's they, like, even like worse. hit him and he fell on the ground and then he kicked him in the head. I was picturing like karate <laughs> like style. Like, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, damn, this damn, is this fucking guy's, like, wild. Bruce Lee. Yeah. <laughs> just fucking power blasted his skull. Like. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, none of them could actually give any reason as to why Goodmunder, a boy with no hint of a criminal past, was in the company of the these three guys like none of them could give a reason as to why wrong place wrong time man yeah and so um Sivar, christian trigvi and albert are all held in custody for goodmunder's murder so um in early 1976 the police are investigating erla and Sivar for goodmunder's murder and during this time erla erla is released mm-hmm. um but she said that because she had been cut off from her family and her friends um and Sivar is now in prison that um these investigators almost became like her friends like they came over almost every day and like they Hmm. did question her but they would like come over and have coffee with her and like she became to you know uh, develop a relationship with them and she felt that she trusted them and so interesting they start asking her about other things and they kind of bring up gearfinger's um disappearance and they basically ask her point blank do you think saivar knows anything about it I wonder if the like reason why they were like spending more time with her was because they maybe saw that they could get information from her about like anything really. Yeah, I think it's possible. I don't know if these police like, officers if it was, actually like, a genuine relationship. Or yeah, if they were like no, I don't. I don't. I personally don't think so. From the things that I've heard, I think that she felt very vulnerable and mm. very uh, lonely. She had talked about the whole year prior. She had suffered from like deep, deep depression. Okay. Um, and so. Yeah, I don't think that they felt the same about her that she did about yeah. them. Yeah, she was just like a golden ticket to information. Yeah, so they asked her point blank um, if she thought Sivar knew anything. At this point, there had been rumors going around about Gearfinner's disappearance again because it was more of a, it seemed like a crime. And mm-hmm. at this point, there were um, there were people who ran a club in Reykjavik um, and there was a lot of smuggling going on. Mm. So the rumor was that some of the clubs in Reykjavik were getting their alcohol from these smugglers. Oh. And people suspected that maybe Gearfinner was like maybe working for some of them, got caught up in something bad. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in um, so on January 22nd, uh, Saivar provides a witness statement saying that he saw Gearfinner on the night that he disappeared, that they had picked him up at the cafe for a smuggling job. Some of the men went out to sea on a small boat to pick up the alcohol, but Sivar stayed back. And when they returned, Gearfinner wasn't with them. And they said he had fallen off the boat and drowned. Uh, okay. So that's, that's Sivar's statement. The next day, uh, January 23rd, Erla makes a statement to the police saying that she was also there that night. Um, and she says that they drove back. Um, they drove from Reykjavik to Keflavik. They stopped um, close to the water she said Gearfinner um, had been hired to pick up some containers of alcohol to bring into the country. There was a fight and he had died because of some argument. And um, in this statement, Erla also implicated her half-brother, Einar Bolison, okay. and one of the managers of the nightclub, Magnus Leopoldson. So um, Christian also makes a statement saying that he was there that night. Okay. And in late January, um, four more suspects known as the club men or the Kluberin four are arrested. So the two that Erla named and two more people. Interesting. Okay. So the perception was that this was a result of organized crime. And the belief was that this was a massive scandal at the time because um, 
the progressive party in Iceland had had been involved. The belief was that they had been involved in some smuggling and had tried to cover up not only the smuggling, but the murder of Geirfinnur as well. Hmm. And the chairman of the progressive party was also the minister of justice at the time. So people were like, this is huge. Yeah. The newspapers were running wild. They broke like record sales during this time because people were buying them up, yeah. eating, eating the story up, right? It was sort of like a mass hysteria. And it's not like a heavily like crime-filled place to begin it's with. It's not. So. It's not. And a lot of people describe this time as Iceland's loss of innocence. They felt okay. like the outside world had had come Penetrated. to them. Yeah. The organized crime had come to Iceland. Yeah. They have this like killer gang. Penetrated is not the right word. I meant to say infiltrated, <laughs> but, but like but here yes, I am like it, penetrated it fucking penetrated Iceland. them. <laughs> so they like, felt they felt a loss of innocence and they felt a loss of security during this time. Fair. This, this really rattled the nation. Yeah. Um. And so in May. 1976 i don't know why it took them so freaking long for this but all of the club men all four of them are released because they all have alibis oh perfect <laughs> yeah and it just took oh, them okay, so perfect that long to verify i don't from know what, what january they, to may the end of january to may that's a really long time and then they were like oh they all have alibis like the one guy's wife then the other guy like his why didn't mom, they just check I, into that like immediately i, I don't know <laughs> and so at this point, the police are pissed because they're like, Saivar and Erla they're, and their whole gang, they're screwing with us. They made yeah. this whole story up um, to try and take the scent off of them. And huh. um, the police were already under huge pressure to solve this case, but now even more so because they looked like absolute idiots. Well, yeah. They had I mean, kept these guys in custody. Half a year to fucking they had trashed these alibis. Yeah, they had trashed these guys' reputations. Also, Erla's half-brother um okay einar i think his name was is that what i read yeah i think so einar bolison he was like a famous icelandic basketball player at the time so he was one of like the nation's like greatest athletes so he was kind of a little bit of a celebrity oh, as well so people were like how dare you yeah how <laughs> dare you insult him yeah um so may 3rd um erla was arrested the police believed that or you know again erla and everyone else were making up the story and they were uh, basically obstructing justice um and on may 4th erla makes a statement saying that sh that cyber gave her a rifle and she shot gearfinner okay so she just admitted but there were other statements that were given that said that he had drowned that he was beaten to death their statements were inconsistent and all over the fucking place interesting which you know what that means <laughs> so <Interesting>. the police <laughs> And also keep in mind, the police had no bodies. They had no evidence. All they had were these statements. So um, mm. the police were just at a loss. Like, again, the yeah. police in Iceland had never dealt with a case like this before. They, no, they, were probably they didn't have the resources or the expertise. Yeah. So the Minister of Justice says we need to get an expert in here to help to help our police force um, with sense. this. Someone who's done this before. Yeah. So enter Carl Schutz. Okay. Um so Welcome he Carl shoots. <laughs> he's um the he was the head of the West German secret police at the time. Um he was Intense. known in Germany as Commissar Kugelblitz. Oh. Which this means, doesn't sound friendly. <laughs> which means just wait for it. Okay. Oh fuck. It translates to Inspector Ball Lightning. Oh. Inspector Ball Lightning? That's exactly what it said in the book. It doesn't even say like Ball of Lightning. It says Inspector Ball Lightning. Okay. 
I don't know. I want to say like I'm inclined to be like Inspector Lightning Balls or something. Yeah. You know, like wh- where is it? <laughs> and the thunder just was like, go <laughs> gosh. Like, um, late. He would be later described by one of the accused years later as um, an old Nazi. Very <laughs> like, nice. If you want to just get the vibe of this man, he stormed into Iceland. He didn't speak the language. Yeah. Well, he's inspecting people's balls using lightning. <laughs> so I mean, <laughs> like. <laughs> um so he arrives in june 1976 for one week he familiarizes himself with the garfinner case that's who they were bringing him in for because the goodmunder case in their eyes was solved yeah um or so they thought (laughs) (laughs) um so he comes to iceland in june for one week he returns in august and sets up a task force of 12 people which massive, massive task yeah. force in Iceland. That's like all of I know. police For a officers. I was like, 12? That sounds like a regular police team to <laughs> no. me, but. And again, three of them were translators because he only spoke German. So uh, okay. Schutz had a reputation for solving cases, um, high profile cases in Germany. He actually came to Iceland and he solved a different murder within like a few days. Oh, like there was a, a, a female cleaner that had been bludgeoned to death and he solved the murder within like three days. He's like, hold my beer. Let me clean this town up. <laughs> yeah. Like- so people, the newspapers were like gushing over him. They're like, he's our savior. He's going to be what we need to like solve this case. Like he's so competent. He's an expert. Right. So people were. He's the murderer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was in Germany the whole time. But he still murdered them. He somehow did. <laughs> So uh, Schutz felt like there was enough similarities in the stories that he could piece together a narrative and he could, his job was to make this, these confessions cohesive and, yeah. and viable in court because yeah. they weren't at this point at no, all. No, it doesn't sound like it. Like, And his job was, his main focus was to find the body because again, they didn't have a body that had no crime scene, nothing. Hmm. So yeah. there was numerous searches and they pressed all of the accused to give them a location yeah and also he said we need to identify who was driving the car because none of these people had a car none of them did so he's like we need another person to like bring yeah. into this like and there needs to be another who body. Has a car yeah. so eventually through questioning um a man named gudion uh, was identified as the driver so on november 12th 1976 um so again shoots arrived in in June and then came back in August. So this is November 12th. Gudion, Gudion was arrested. He was older and more educated than the others. Um, mm-hmm. And he came from a good family. He had actually been Sivar's student teacher in 1971 hmm. before Sivar had been expelled. Um, and in 1975, they ran into each other on a ferry and Sivar said he was trying to um, smuggle some marijuana into Iceland from Holland and asked Gudion if he would help him. And Gudjon, uh, and he, Cyber said he would pay him, and Gudjon agreed, and they both got caught. And so, anyways, they had known each other through that. Um, <laughs> it's like they, a really casual relationship. Yeah, it said that they got to Iceland, and like the police were just waiting for them. Like, so ah, I don't know gotcha. how they planned this, but it wasn't a good plan. Doesn't um, sound like it. <laughs> so, like hand over the drugs, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we know what you're yeah, up to. We saw you plan the whole thing. <laughs> In a statement taken, um. In December 1976, Gudion confessed that himself, Christian, and Saivar had all beaten Gerfinner to death. Um, Gudion's confession was seen as more credible than the others um, just because of, like, his character and who he was. Mm -hmm. And so his confession was, like, gonna... They were gonna use this to tie everything together. And it was actually used to convict the others in court. 
Okay. Just because the others, their confessions were so inconsistent at this time that they were like, we need someone else to come in and give like a yeah. a story that we can then like lay everything on basically. That and it was a probably credible like because everyone person. else was so inconsistent and all over the place. They probably yeah. thought they were all just like lying out of their asses. Because their number one witness before this was Erla because they felt she was the perfect witness and she was reliable. But then she implicated these four men and they all had alibis. So they're like, well, we can't trust her anymore. Yeah. So we need someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So on December 9th, 1976, Sivar um, makes a statement saying that two days after bringing Gerfinner's body back to Reykjavik, they loaded um, the body back into a car and drove out to Raudhor. So or it's, translates to the Red Hills and okay. they dug a hole and, and burned the body in it. So, so basically on February 2nd, 1977, so we've jumped ahead a few months now, okay. Carl, Carl Schutz, um holds like a giant press conference. He invites all the press and everything. He outlines the narrative that they had constructed yeah. around these confessions for the press over the span of an hour. He said that they didn't have the body, but they believed, you know, pretty confidently that it was buried in the Red Hills and that they were going to go search for it. Okay um they never found the body um and so but still they moved ahead and charges for the goodmunder murder were filed they had already been filed on december 8th 1976 and then the charges for gearfinner were filed on march 16th 1977 okay um a little over a month after the major press conference so um erla basically says because she's interviewed a lot in this documentary and and in the book as well but you can actually see her in the documentary okay. she she um talks a lot just about uh, this whole process she says that during that time it felt like the the public and the media just wanted the police to nail them for this crime yeah they were like public enemy number one um makes sense like they I, were yeah. they were guilty in the eyes of the public no matter before, long before the trial ever happened um the media was on them all the time at the trial the state prosecutor spoke for over 15 hours in his closing statement what 15 hours in the documentary someone's asking, are you sure you don't mean five because yeah. earlier we had a little like 15 issue. minutes <laughs> 15 hours That's... In, the, in the documentary someone asked the judge like is that normal and he was like no, I wouldn't say that's normal. No that shit. That doesn't sound normal. That's not normal. That's like most like I that's mean I like can't even longer than so they all days. So they all slept in the courtroom. They woke up. This guy gave his closing He's statement and then they went going. to bed because like that's 15 hours. That's your whole day. Um everyone just like brought their pajamas. They were like, "He's still going. We can we can sleep." I'd now. be like, "Can I have popcorn at least?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, unusually long to say the least. Do you do you mind um actually just like reciting it from start to finish? Go. Oh yeah, I have it memorized <laughs> actually. It's my number one monologue. And go. Um the, so the accused said at the at the trial they basically had all retracted their statements they said they were innocent and that they had no evidence and no bodies which which, like, which was true they had no bodies yeah. still at this point um and um again they all withdrew their testimonies and claimed that they were innocent but at this point there wasn't a single person in iceland that believed that they were innocent um yeah and and again erla just said that it felt like everybody was just like claws out yeah against them. and that's kind of what happens when like the media gets involved too, yes because like we, we've heard about that in like other mm -hmm. cases where it's like the second like the like public decides someone's guilty even mm -hmm. if they're like not they're fucking guilty yeah 
yeah absolutely we've seen it happen so many times and this one was no different where people were like it's so like we're so sure yeah Uh, they felt like again this is the 70s like we know a lot now about coercion and false confessions and things like that this is the 70s nice and they're like if they confess they did it why would you confess if there's still people today like yeah. I've heard people say recently, they're like, why would you confess to a crime you didn't commit? Well, even well, like, remember like the the one story like Ali had told us when she was crossing the border and they like yeah. aggressively questioned her. She was like, I was ready to like admit to things that I had never even in my life done before. Because you just want to get out. Yeah, because yes. they're so aggressive. We've like, seen this with like making a murderer. Like we, yeah. we've we seen numerous, numerous accounts now where we know why these things happen. But at this point, people were like, they confess, they're guilty. Yeah. And Erla was... um. She was basically seen... Cyber was, again, always viewed as an outsider. So to the public, they were sort of like not surprised. He was always a delinquent. He was always a troublemaker. Erla was born and bred in Iceland. Both of her parents were Icelandic. And the fact that she had turned on... Um, her own her own family and implicated people to try and like that like the way they saw it to try and get out of it or try to cover up her crime they felt like she was almost worse Mm. they people were super offended by what she had done especially again because it's her half insult to like yeah and again her half brother was like a sports star beloved by the nation so they were really disgusted with her along with everyone else as well but it felt more personal i think Mm. for i um for Icelanders, what she did. And yeah. so um, Erla was found guilty of embezzlement and perjury for trying to frame the four men. Um, Saivar, Christian, and Trigvi were all convicted of murder, um, the murder of Goodmunder. Albert, who had allegedly, allegedly um, driven the car, was convicted of obstruction of justice. Saivar, Christian, and Gudjan were convicted of murdering Gerfinner um, in, in a dispute <laughs> over alcohol smuggling. And Christian was identified as the man in the yellow shirt walking with Goodmunder, as well as the man who made the co- the phone call to Gerfinner at the Harbor Cafe. Hmm. Um, so they were kind of fitting him in there. That's Yeah, they just pieced him in. Yeah. After the guilty verdict in 1977, Christian and Cyber were sentenced to life in prison. So because of the, the length of these sentences, again, this was not common in Iceland, um, they were automatically sent to the Supreme Court in 1980. And most of the convictions were shortened as um, the Supreme Court didn't agree that they could be charged with murder because they didn't believe that any of these were predetermined or pre-planned murders. Yeah. They they didn't think that there was any intent to kill in these situations that it just happened. So more like manslaughter. Manslaughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Saivar, the final sentences were Saivar was sentenced to 17 years in prison. Christian was sentenced to 16 years. Trigvi was sentenced to 13 years. Gudjan was sentenced to 10 years, Erla was sentenced to three years, and Albert was sentenced to 12 months. Um, and at this point, again, there is one police officer who was interviewed in the documentary, and he basically said that like, the police truly believed they had arrested the right people. Erla says, um, you know, that Saivar and her were, Saivar was seen as like this evil, yeah. satanic person. Um, and Erla, as his like submissive accomplice, she said we were given a reputation very much like Charles Manson and the Manson girls. Mm, um, and again, remember, this is now they were, you know, it went to trial in 1977, but they had been arrested in 1970, end of 1975. Almost, yeah. The Manson murders were 69. So like this yeah. was really recent after. And mm. again, they were very much 
associated with with that like cyber was seen as like the in iceland charles manson basically they were like he was the um he orchestrated the the ringleader he was a smart he was a very very small person in stature he was like bullied in school as a kid trigvi and christian were like the big ones like the Hmm. big sort of like they were the muscle so everyone saw cyber as like the brains the mastermind behind this operation erla was his like kind of like text submissive girlfriend and and manipulated and everything and then his friends were these like criminals yeah so that's that's how everyone kind of saw them so erla was released in 1981 because her sentence was only three years right so um she said that she was simultaneously the subject of curiosity as well as unanimously despised yeah. by people she said people would shout things at her they would say terrible things like one woman walked up and just spit right in her face oh okay pet peeve no don't ever terrible do that. oh my gosh that's so insulting like no <laughs> like i'd rather you just like take a shit in front of me at that rate <laughs> yeah. like great <laughs> just i it's, don't like it, just don't put your bodily fluids on anybody that doesn't want no, that that's you know so, i mean yeah <laughs> but it's like no spitting in someone's face especially like right now with like covid we're all like yeah oh my god i know it sounds like a blasphemous now but (laughs) even back then i think that's like it's a lot so um (laughs) erla said that she that saivar went through years of anger blaming her for everything she experienced incredible guilt for having testified against him um you know because she had to um all six of them served their sentences um, and Saivar is the last to be released as she is he was given the longest sentence mm. um and when he was released again like he was just viewed as evil incarnate for well, most Icelanders people again as much as they hated Erla like they again like imagine if Charles Manson was released like 15 years after the Manson murders like how people would have treated him right oh he would have been like executed like, yeah from the exactly spot by people so um he eventually met a girl and they started a family and they moved to America. So again, his dad was American. He was just raised in Iceland. But mm. um, Saivar's son is in the documentary and he says that they they moved to Colorado to try and get away from the drama of his, of his father. Because moving to America, like no one knew who he was. Yeah. Again, this was, an, this was a big news for Iceland because it was, again, like this was yeah. unprecedented. But you go to like the States yeah. in the and 70s they're like, <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> we have like 80,000 murders they're a day. Like, There's seven serial killers just in this town alone. So they hadn't heard about this. No one knew who he was in the States. Hmm. So they were like, we can go, we can start a new life. No one will know who you are. But his son says that it haunted him um, because he he was persistent about um maintaining his innocence and he felt i mean like he had been cheated and um and it just it it never sat right with him so in the early 90s i think 94 um they went back to iceland and saivar attempted to he wanted to clear his name and so he submitted a report to the ministry of justice demanding that the case be retried um, and Cyber had approached um, an Icelandic director to make a documentary about the case and the trial. And um, Cyber's new lawyer, he hired a new lawyer and he he began investigating. And he says in the documentary immediately, his impressions were that this case was unusual. Um, he says that usually you have a crime scene, you have a body, you have a motive. Mm-hmm. But the police had none of that in this case. All they had, they hung everything on the statements of these accused people. Um, so the director of the documentary learns a lot about how Saivar was um, treated in Sidmuli prison 
And at first they're sort of like, we have to go on his word because like they, he's telling us this happened and they yeah. didn't have a ton of proof about it. Um, but eventually they, they asked to film uh, reenactment scenes in Sidamuli prison because it was going to be demolished. Mm-hmm. And the the ministry and and the government were like yeah yeah no worries that's fine and so the director says basically in in the book he's like i don't think that they realized that we did have some evidence of some or that like i don't think they realized what reenactment scenes we were going to be filming because saivar basically says that he was tortured in this prison that they all were and while they're there the the uh director gets someone to like distract one of the prison guards and he takes a peek at the prison logs and it corroborates everything that Saivar is saying. Wow. And so they Saivar says that one of the methods of torture that he experienced was called the stretching. I already know. Can you Im- imagine, right? So they handcuff his... If something's his... called the stretching, <laughs> you already know what it is. Yeah, exactly. They handcuff his hands and feet and, and they pull him. him apart. And as they were... Sometimes I do feel like my back needs that. Great. I, on your own volition. On and my you own can volition, stop though. whenever you want to. Yeah. Like where you're like, okay, that's enough. But <laughs> someone doing this to you sounds horrifying oh, to me. And he said that there was a former prison guard that had worked there at the time and he was present and they had the actor doing the reenactment and the prison guard steps in and goes, no, 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 that's not how we did it. And he jumps <laughs> down ranks it. <laughs> he jumps down and shows them a more horrific way of doing this. And the entire <laughs> crew was astonished. That's scary. So, so again, this director is like really realizing, okay, this guy's not lying. Like this it's actually scary. happened to him and this is horrifying. Um, so on February 21st, 1997, Saivar appeals to the Supreme Court. Um, the court decided that there wasn't enough evidence for a retrial, but the documents show that Saivar was undoubtedly um, mistreated while in custody. So on top of the evidence submitted, his lawyer explains that in the justice system, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, but the media had decided that these people were guilty long before yeah. the trial even began. Oh, 100%. Yeah, of yeah. course. And we talked about that. Um, Saivar, at this point in the in the late 90s, had actually collected a lot of support. Um, and people were starting to believe him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he appealed two more times but was denied. He went bankrupt trying to prove his innocence. Um, he became a heavy drinker. People often saw him stumbling around on the streets. Um, And at this time, it's kind of described that people were, they sort of mellowed towards him. Because again, a lot of people started to believe him. pity almost. And they just pitied him. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, And like Erla said, people had always kind of found him charming and intriguing. And and at this point, again, they felt bad for him. So in 2009, there's actually a video of Saivar, it looks like they might be in a courthouse or something. Maybe he's trying to submit something again, but there's a bunch of like media representatives there. And he basically calls him out and he was like, I was just a boy. I was just a child at the time and you guys ruined my life. Um, and he's he's drunk obviously and yeah. everything, but it's 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 really sad. Um, and so Saivar passed away on July 13th, 2011. Oh, damn. And the service in Iceland was packed. Um, like you would have thought that like the president died. Um, Erla says it was packed with everyone from like homeless people to politicians and everyone in Mm. between. Um, Everyone was there. And so when he died, Erla and Saivar's children um, came forward to talk about the case and they really pushed for it to be reopened as well. Um, So in the documentary, they, they cut to an interview with an Icelandic reporter. Her name's Helga. And she says that she decided to look into this case 
And she had been warned because lots of people had tried to look into this case and it was described as a black hole. People were like, you're going to go down into this dark hole and you're never going to find anything. And it's going to be, it's just one of those cases, right? Yeah. And so, but she gets in touch with Trigvi's widow. So Trigvi had now passed as well. He passed in 2009, I believe. So she got in touch with his widow and his daughter and she does an interview and his daughter at this time brings his diaries from that he kept while he was in prison she just thought that it would be good for her to have just to see she was like i wanted someone to see what my dad was like my dad was a great dad yeah he maintained his innocence and like these are his diaries and i wanted someone to read them and just maybe understand what kind of a person he was outside of like him being this criminal right right and so um helga starts reading these diaries so the title of the diary he writes is this is the diary of an innocent man accused of a very serious thing in a very serious case Hmm. um and the diaries revealed that trigby had spent um a lot of time alone in isolation and he says like he's not afraid of the outcome because he's innocent and justice always prevails in the end um and he goes on and on about about his innocence so she decides to see if she can get the diaries verified somehow mm-hmm. and she contacts dr geesley gudjensen who is a forensic psychologist and a world leading expert in false confessions um he's uh, an icelander but he practiced in the uk for 40 years so he lives in england at the time okay and um geesley examines the diaries he's also interviewed in the um documentary he's, i gotta watch this he's phenomenal <laughs> like he's so cool anyways i want to just like meet him and ask him everything so cool. <laughs> um so You're he, like nerding out i'm right so like, nerding I, out I, like I oh my god um so he examines the diaries extensively and he says he cannot say for certain that trigvi was innocent but in the diaries he's he is stating his innocence and he's not only doing that but he's explaining why he's innocent um with a lot of like thorough reasoning and so he believes that this qualifies as new material that was never examined and that Mm -hmm. it should have been um and he believed that the confessions were likely not reliable that's what he concluded and Mm. so trigvi's family and helga consider this a big win and helga uh she was a reporter she aired like she was a news reporter on tv so she aired a, a full story detailing what she found and it blew up because again this was wow. new evidence and people were like okay wait like yeah this guy was in prison for all that time and he was still saying that he was innocent like what was going on and so um a few days later the minister of internal affairs announces that they would be um putting together a commission to look into the investigation and the methods that were used in obtaining these confessions yes which good, good on them <laughs> <laughs> you're like which yes yeah. <laughs> accurate yeah. you know this is sounding a lot now that we're like getting to this part, this is sounding a lot like the Icelandic version of the West Memphis Three. Yeah, and and again, and again, there's a lot of cases that it sounds a little bit similar to. Yeah. Um, well, that one they just got murderer, a false Central Park Five, like yeah. So, um, thousands of pages of police reports and handwritten notes were examined, and it became quite obvious that the prison diaries um, from the accused. Um, sorry it became obvious from the prison diaries from the accused that a lot of the police records were missing Mm. Mm, convenient (laughs) very (laughs) conveniently enough a lot of the police records were missing so when that happens it's also like (laughs) 
Oh, okay. So you're hiding the real truth. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, that's the red up. flag number one. Yeah. We're suspicious now. Yeah. <laughs> the documents revealed, um, the documents that they did have revealed that the accused were given limited access to their attorneys. They were interrogated many, many times over. Um, and uh, more often than the police reports actually indicated. And prison logs demonstrate that lawyers were repeatedly denied permission to speak with their clients. Um, so Saivar had been interrogated 180 times Jesus fuck. for a total of 340 hours. His lawyer was only present for 49 of those investigations. Which or sorry, I, those interrogations. Can't they like not do that? No, that's illegal. But again. <laughs> no, no, no. They certainly that's, cannot. Yeah, no, <laughs> but they, they did it anyways. They fucking did it. Um, Erla was interrogated 105 times. Her lawyer was only present for three. <gasps> yeah. That's... <laughs> Did you hear the utter shock? Yeah. In my, like, uh, again, it's just appalling. That is, that's <sighs> super suspicious. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna get into a little bit about how the the book describes, um, what happens to a person in solitary confinement, and then I'm gonna oh, tell yeah. you how long these people were in solitary confinement for, because I think yeah. it'll shock you a lot more after I tell you about. Oh, I a know about of solitary these. confinement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the book talks about like briefly it discusses like maze experiments with rats where like there's a maze. The maze stays the same every day. They put food in the same place for the rat every day. Mm -hmm. So the rat like knows where it is. And out of pure like boredom and monotony, the rat will take different routes to get to the yeah. same place because like to alleviate the tediousness of of this. So they're basically saying like uh, you can go to the same place every day. But if it's if they're asking you the same things or the outcome is always the same, you'll sometimes you'll take route. different route, like routes to get there. Yeah. Right. Um, it says just a few days of solitary confinement can shift the pattern of the human brain into an abnormal configuration characteristic of stupor and extreme disorientation. Mm -hmm. So just a few days um, for ethical reasons. Obviously, there aren't very many experiments that can study you know uh clearly the effects of solitary confinement because we can't just put people in there and be like no. let's and see what happens to your brain and even people that are like volunteering for that it's not something you want to do because it's it's really bad for you yeah like back to the west memphis three like damien eccles has like lifetime fucking ailments yeah because of his solitary confinement from being on death row which by the way he didn't commit the crime mm -hmm. and he's like pretty much blind now yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'll get to the, yeah, yeah. just Sorry. some of the effects I, yeah, of this. Definitely. No, 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 for sure. But some of these experiments um, that we can kind of like use as an approximation were done in the 50s. So again, I truly don't think these would pass, these would pass no. as an ethics, ethics board today. Doctors nowadays would be like, no, 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 no. But um, the one was, the well, the one was with monkeys. So I don't know. It depends maybe how much people care about monkeys I today. I care about monkeys. I love monkeys. I'm just saying an ethics panel might be like, you could do it on monkeys, just not on people. I don't know. But um, in the 1950s, for sure, they were like, we don't give a shit. Um, Save the monkeys. I love monkeys. They're so cute. <laughs> um, it's, this is, they, and this is really sad. So in 1950s, Harry Harlow did an experiment with monkeys. They kept them in a chamber for days. Oh. Um, and the monkeys began self-harming. No, no. Walking around in circles and rocking back and forth in a state of profound disturbance. Stop and that it. Was, that was over just a few days. Another experiment, this wasn't with monkeys, this one was with people. Good. 
Um, Sorry, I prefer no, no, no. Pe- I know you prefer that. <laughs> I, yeah, like, I almost do those too. innocent and people. This one, these, this was completely voluntary. So this was actually an experiment done at McGill University in Montreal. Oh, cool. in Montreal. Okay. Sweet, hello, Canada. Um, in 1951, and okay. so um, all of these subjects were paid for this experiment, and they were all psychology majors who were like genuinely excited to participate in a in a psychology experiment, and they were like truly interested in the outcome of yeah. it. Right. So again, none of these people were really forced or anything, and no. it's like typical. You can leave whenever you want to kind of thing so um basically subjects were put in a cubicle and they laid on a bed with visors to limit their sight gloves and long tubes um on their arms to limit their touch and a u-shaped pillow around their head to cut off any sound so they were basically trying to see what would happen if you just like kind of cut off ever like all of your senses and just like like leave you there yeah and their only daily interaction with people was when food was brought um or when they were taken to the toilet so within days, almost all of the students experienced hallucinations um, that developed over days into movie-like scenes. Um, like, and they all saw like different things. This might have started with like sh- like small shapes and stuff. Like, some one person claims that they just saw nothing but dogs. And I'm like, that's oh. you. <laughs> I literally was about to be so like, was oh, Becky. okay. So me having like actual daytime like dreams of just, <laughs> just Oscar dogs being cute. running everywhere. Um, but again, the commonality was they were all experiencing hallucinations. Also, they were hearing like sounds and voices. They were oh, feeling so sensations, weird. just things that were not there and were not happening. Right. Um, many reported dissociative episodes where they felt like they were simultaneously inside and outside of their body. That's so scary. Um. The experiment was supposed to last six weeks long. Not a single subject lasted more than seven days. That's fucked. Yeah. Sensory deprivation is not good. No. I'm no. pretty sure Jade and I said it in our very first episode where we were like, no, sensory deprivation is like very fucking dangerous. Yeah. It's, like, it's messed even up. Even a couple hours in complete sensory deprivation, not good. Yeah. And, and, and again, like these people were willing. They were excited about this experiment. Yeah. They were excited to see what would happen to them. And after uh, seven days, up. they that were all like, I can't do this anymore. And yeah. they weren't even in, you know what I'm saying? They weren't even in prison. Yeah. Um, so... Like they um, at least had pillows and stuff. Like yeah, it was. They said it was a comfortable bed. Like they yeah. were all comf- made comfortable. They were fed and everything. But um, so in the book, they also quote um, Dr. Stuart Grassian, who is um, basically a leading researcher in the field of like the effects of solitary confinement. He had studied it for over twenty five years, and he has written extensively about the effects of basically sensory deprivation and the deprivation of like stimulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, how that causes severe psychiatric harm. He says intrusive thoughts, overt paranoia, and hallucinations are the most common symptoms reported by inmates who have experienced solitary confinement. Yeah. So over the course of this entire investigation, um, Erla was in solitary for 241 days. Saivar <gasps> was in solitary confinement for 615 days. Oh, yeah, he's fucked. And Trigvi was in solitary confinement for 655 days. Holy shit. Um, It's believed to be the longest stint in solitary confinement outside of Guantanamo. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So when we talk about this experiment where people couldn't last more than seven days, um, these people, like Trigvi was in solitary confinement for like, that's almost two years. I don't know how they didn't just kill themselves. So you would just go so mad after a while that like something would snap like. Yeah. And I will. Yeah, I will get to I will get to that. So um, 
March 23rd, 2013, the commission stated that it was abundantly clear that the accused had been mistreated, the confessions were unreliable, and advised that the case be reopened by the state prosecutor. The key findings were that the confessions were in all likelihood fabricated. Well, yes. Yeah. Um, Dr. Geasley, the guy I said is like my rock star, um, <laughs> he says he'd never seen a case where there were this many interrogations for such lengths. And again, he, he'd worked... Yeah. Um, for over 40 years in the uk and he had wow. never seen a case like this before so that says a lot wild yeah he says this is the only case he is aware of where so many individuals had had their memories distorted to such an extreme extent he said yeah. five out of the six of them very clearly had what he calls memory distrust syndrome um where the person begins to think that you know like maybe something did happen but they don't remember or they can't trust their memories at all um that's scary like that's yeah it's terrifying and again, Erla is talking through the documentary through all of this. And she basically says that she read the report and she was uh, confronted with how unreliable her memory really is. Um, and the police claim that it was Erla who originally told them that they were involved in these disappearances. But Erla says that the police, um, the police had discussed how, you know, some people bury memories of terrible things and they repress them and that we're going to help you recall them she's like that Which, this is how this all came about and again we know that it, back in the 70s there there just wasn't a lot of evidence on interrogation no. techniques the things that you were supposed to do the things you weren't supposed you to do you can't really ask guided questions or like lead the no interrogation in one way you kind of have to let it unfold to some yeah. degree like and and again this a lot has to do with um, Carl Schutz, which I'll yeah. get to as well. Um, so ba basically, Earl is like, they planted a seed in my mind and over and over and over again through all these interviews, they they like convinced me that this happened. Um, and at the, at the time that Erla was uh, questioned in the Goodmunder case, she again, she was very vulnerable yeah. and she felt very alone. She felt like she trusted these people. So Dr. Geasley says that um, it's likely that the officers had in their own mind what they thought happened and over time, they convinced Erla that this happened and they and Erla began to believe, you know, that her and Saivar had been involved because they were just convincing her of this over yeah. and over again. Um, and once she began to express doubts in her own memory, the police clung to that and and they didn't let it go. Like they were like, yeah, you don't remember. Yeah. And we'll tell really? you what exa exactly what happened. So by the time um, Erla was arrested in the Gearfinner case, she had felt internally like subconsciously so guilty about implicating all of these people that that's why she said that she had shot him she felt like i at least could take the fall for that um yeah. even though again the all the inconsistencies it wasn't determined that she murdered him but that's why she said that in one yeah. of the confessions because she was just like i felt like i needed to take it on myself um yeah. so testimony from a former guard um at the Sidamuli prison, he said that when the suspects were all detained, the atmosphere was very intense. He said he had worked with these people a long time and they were all very kind, um, like gentle people, but everything had changed. And the attitudes among the police and the guards were that these people were murderers, they were evil, and that the sooner we got confessions out of them, the better. And that we were doing like a service to Iceland to get these confessions well, out of them. No, you're not if you're getting the wrong people sure yeah i would agree i would be inclined to agree with you on that um you're doing a disservice because you're wasting i'm sorry like a total of thousands and thousands of hours like yeah interrogating these people wasting resources on 
holding up cells for these people when like the real possible murderers are out there yeah or whatever really happened and again the extreme pressure that the police were under um to find someone and you know could someone have stopped at a certain point and been like i don't know if these people did it maybe but at this point they they hit a point of no return because they, they had put so much, so many resources so many hours into this they had looked like idiots with the four men that they arrested and they didn't yeah. so they were just like they we hung everything on dumb. these people and it was just like it it didn't matter anymore about the truth it mattered just about getting them mm-hmm. um they called Saivar in Sudamuli. they called him the rat and they were the guard says they were determined to break him. Saivar, um, in his journals, describes a two-month period where the guards would keep the lights in his cell on 24 hours a day. Oh, my God. And at night, they would bang on the walls and keep him awake. Um, this Sleep was during... deprivation is my next thing. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Severe, severe That's how a lot effects. of cult leaders get, like members to join is by like yeah depriving them of sleep without the people realizing they're being deprived of their yeah. sleep so the effects of the isolation on top of the effects of sleep deprivation like just yeah. a whole bundle of fucking it's a cluster like how is yeah. their brain not soup after i don't know i don't know um and so this was confirmed by a former guard who was an electrician and he um, tampered with the wiring to make sure that the light switch didn't work and so like this was confirmed by multiple people um oh. And it was known to many people that Saivar was afraid of water. And so they no. they would take him into the washroom and they would dunk his head in a sink full of water and they would threaten to drown him if he didn't confess. I'd confess to murder too. If I would someone too. Someone was 1, making 000%. me do like, yeah. something And that's I like hated. my biggest fear on top of the sleep deprivation, the isolation, everything, right? So it's all of it's my biggest fear. <laughs> Albert had a major mental breakdown after three days. Um, after four nights of sleeplessness, Trigvi had had to be sedated by injection. Uh, Christian tried to kill himself twice. Um, so all of them were going through this. And yeah. and like you said, like, j- like I'm surprised they, d- yeah. they didn't try to kill themselves. Well, Christian did. Um, yes, I'm sure fun. a lot of them thought about it. And yeah. Dr. Geasley says that um, all of this just basically broke down their capacity to even know what was real and what was not. Yeah. Um, because you're almost in like just like a constant hallucinative. Oh, I can't say this word. Like, <laughs> you know what? You know what I'm. You're trying in to say. like a constant hallucination. I think is kind of what you're saying. Like you just don't know. Yes. What's real and what's not. Erla says that they brought her uh, tranquilizers four times a day, and that um like that they forced her to take. She wasn't allowed to go outside. She was completely isolated. She said she just wanted to die. Um, <sighs> except for thinking about her infant daughter. Um, but she says that at a certain point she couldn't even picture her daughter's face anymore and she started to wonder if she even had a child oh because she probably thought it was like all just like because she couldn't trust her memory anymore none of them could they none of them just at that point knew what was going on that's why they got to trial and they retracted all of their statements because they're like what's happening i mean yeah i said that but now that i'm out you know not out but like clear-headed i know i didn't do this but people are like too late you already signed this confession fucking crazy shit man so um and yeah she basically just said like the police told her if she wanted to be released she had to tell them everything um and again she just didn't know what was real and what was not so um because the accused were constantly changing their stories that's when carl shoots was brought in and um and he he focused everything on harmonizing their their confessions and making them credible in court and 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 
he focused on proving their guilt. And so um, he taught the police officers in Iceland how to interrogate people properly. So he said, you need to jump properly, from- properly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Or like fuck their brains up. Oh, properly. fuck their brains up properly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just making sure. Just A new way sure. of interrogating, right? <laughs> yeah. So he said, you need to jump from one time period to the other to trick them into revealing the truth. Oh, like jump around and confuse sense. them, right? Mm-hmm. You need to suggest things that could have happened. One hundred percent. This sounds like a list of things to not do. Yes. (laughs) No, basically what we know now not to do, what police officers I hope are trained not to do, even though we see we still see this happen today. It still fucking happens. Appalling and it's embarrassing. Like But he he was like, These are the new techniques that we're teaching everybody. And basically leading questions, uh implanting information, all the things you're not supposed to do. Gudion's diary states that um, he said the detectives just wanted me to get used to the idea of being a murderer. Mm. And that's basically what they were trying to get them to do, right? Yep. To just accept it. Um, so yeah, like leading questions like, was it Sivar or was it Christian? Was it dumped in the ocean or was it bur- like buried in the, in yeah. the lava field? Like, right? like four just, questions, uh, yeah, not like, right? so what over happened? Over and over and over again. By the end of it, um, they Gudion said he felt like he had been there and that it really happened. So... Um, in February of 2017, um, following the government investigation of the case, the committee agreed to reopen the cases and have a retrial for five of the people sentenced. The request to reopen Erla's case was rejected. Mm. Um, in 2018, a retrial was conducted. Saivar, Trigvi, Christian, Gudjan, and Albert were all acquitted. Um, Erla was the only member of the six convicted that did not get a retrial, um, and the charges of perjury still stand for her. Mm. And I, I do want to point out that an acquittal means that the prosecution failed to prove his or her case beyond a reasonable doubt, yeah. not that the defendant is innocent. Yeah. Um, Gudion's lawyer was the only one who requested that his client be declared innocent, but they didn't they, they didn't approve they that. They just yeah. acquitted them. Um, and so after this, there was a BBC documentary called The Reykjavik Confessions that later inspired this documentary that I watched, Out of Thin Air, mm-hmm. which was released in 2017. Um, and then the book, Out of Thin Air, was released in 2018. Um, oh, and I thought the book came first. I thought so too, but the book came after. I think maybe the author was probably like, I, I wonder if he was working together with this documentarian and then released the book after. Yeah. I don't okay, know. Makes sense. Because that's so close to like yeah, and they're yeah. they're the same title, right? So they must have been working together on some in some capacity. Um, it says that in the documentary, the police officers and judges involved in the case denied to be a part of the document uh, documentary. Yeah, out of sheer embarrassment, they're probably. Like, mm-hmm. um, in 2020, the state tre- treasury in Iceland dispensed 774 million kronor, um, which is just over six million U.S. dollars in compensation to parties acquitted. So. Albert, Gudjon, and Christian, as really well as thing. the families of Saivar and Trigvi, who are, okay. uh, had They're both passed, yeah. Um, uh, as yeah, as compensation for for the, the trial. hardships, really, yeah. like. And so it doesn't. They all served their sentences. Like it doesn't take anything. It doesn't back. take. Yeah, it doesn't. And make it ruined up for most it. of the, most of their lives. I think would probably agree. Um, yeah. And the bodies of Gudmunder and Gerfriner had never been found. And it's still unknown as to what happened to them today. Fuck. That was wild. Yeah. I know that was a long one, but 
How long was it? I don't even know how long it's been. We're at an hour and a half. Okay. Your mom's texted me like three times, by the way. Oh, gosh, I know. She just <laughs> called me. I'm like, <laughs> she's like, guys, have you mentioned my name yet? Like, <laughs> oh, oh, hilarious. Mom. Yeah. So that's, yeah. When I, I hope you can understand why when I read this book, I was like, how have I never heard of this case before? I, yeah. This is fucked like it's it, just it literally sounds like the icelandic version of the west memphis three like almost like yeah and again that's why it's sad crazy. because this, this stuff happens. happens it happens it's happened so, so many times yeah and again like for for these people like they were early 20s they were kids their whole their entire life whole life got ruined just, just got messed totally up from this ruined. um you know and erla in the documentary she she's you know she has her daughter and she lives in iceland and and again people don't look at her the same way that they did back then and, and i think again a lot they? of these people now that they've mo they've all mostly been acquitted yeah i think now people are like oh shit but it doesn't change the, the fact that for years like she stayed in iceland saivar left but she stayed there and people deal spit with at her ridicule. people looked at her yeah terribly they said awful things about her it's imagine awful. her daughter's life too like i mean the things people would say about her mom and yeah. like you know it's just even though Erla's like I'm okay now it's just it doesn't change the fact that it it ruined a good yeah. chunk of her life yeah and it ruined and she said that her and Saivar could never like they never really connected after that um because he was angry he left yeah and she felt so incredibly guilty um and then he died and it's you never just, get to like resolve that like yeah wow yeah, yeah that's fucking crazy yeah so wow. again I, I would highly recommend people reading this book if you think that, that was, was interesting that was a hefty h at the beginning of that highly <laughs> highly <laughs> highly <laughs> um it's so good and again i can't wait I'm everything i just said it times it by 10 there's so much more information that you're gonna read this book and you're like holy shit I like, just, wow Haley actually cut out a lot <laughs> yeah and the documentary again like uh um dylan howitt the director did an excellent job and I'm, there I'm so you excited. can see if you read the book first you can see a lot of these people in the book in like, the documentary the faces to yeah um or family members and things like that you get their perspectives you get a lot of different perspectives i kind of just tried to focus it on the main people and then some of yeah. the sort of like main players in the dr geesley and the reporter right. and things like that but there's a lot of other people that weigh in on this mm -hmm. and it's just it's fascinating but it's heartbreaking yeah it and is it's heartbreaking to me that because like for a while there you had me at like oh they fucking did it and, and that's kind like, of the way it's presented sounds like it's like led <laughs> in the book and in the documentary it's sort of like so this happened this happened they confessed to this they confessed to this and then there's like a turning point halfway Surprise. where it's like so <laughs> actually this is what happened yeah. and again i think it's just it's terribly sad that we don't even know what happened to these two men that this all started that's with. like this we well, have no yeah. idea their and their bodies were never found so like those families don't get resolution no nothing no and like nobody wins here nobody fucking wins they're the biggest victims in all of this in in the again the the police work and the well because the just the inability for people to to see some of these things clearly like i get that yeah. one of the prison guards is like we thought we were doing our job we thought we were doing the right thing and it's like 
I get that to an extent, but when you're waterboarding somebody to get a confession out of them, it's not a confession. That you've crossed so many boundaries, yeah. so many ethical lines at that point that like that confession doesn't mean anything anymore. No. I like you said, I would commit to I would admit to anything. Right, make it stop. <laughs> if someone was stretching my body <laughs> yeah. and threatening to drown you me. You don't want to get taller though, the stretch might work for you. I mean, I don't get a good night's sleep for one night and I'm <laughs> cranky as Fucked. oh yeah like <laughs> so i can't imagine after two months of not sleeping i have to like call in sick after i get a bad night's sleep like <laughs> i'm out of commission <laughs> like. so yeah okay so uh, anyways uh uh that's my that's my case that was a tell really him, good one i'm really passionate about this case you're um, like sweating i could have <laughs> spent like, <laughs> like hours and hours more talking about this but you were extremely passionate that entire time i loved it oh <sighs> All right. What a journey. <laughs> I'm ready, ready to wind down. I don't even know how I'm like <laughs> supposed to go to bed after this. I know. <laughs> like, it gets wound me up. amped up. Oh, that yeah. was nuts, man. G- good job. Kudos. Thank you. It was fucking crazy. Thank I, you. I don't even know what else to say other than that was just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Just wild. And uh, yeah, yeah le- you guys let me know what you think. Yeah. And uh, if anybody again, even tries to be like, I didn't like that. <laughs> I'm going to be like, get the fuck out. Just leave right now. If any of it was confusing, I'm sorry. I hope that you, everyone could follow that okay with all the you know names what? and everything. If I can follow it, everyone else okay, can good. because I get confused so quickly. Like, And again, it helped that no one had like the same name. Sometimes that confuses things. Well, but, like the good month or Gryffindor, like it's, they're very close. Yeah, it, it is very close. So again, if anyone was like, oh, could you clarify this for me or whatever? And um, I can Don't totally worry. Do like that. Haley's got the whole like spreadsheet at home. I have everything. Like, I have so much information. <laughs> She'll but, just come over and explain it to you. That's that's tier seven. Um, <laughs> the home service. <laughs> again, I'll say I'll say again. If anyone knows anyone from Iceland, like reach out to them, ask them about this case. I would love to know. Yes, I can't wait to go there and just ask people about it, which is super inappropriate. But <laughs> you're just gonna show up, start knocking on hey, doors, like, "Hello, tell me, <laughs> tell me everything." Like, Ma'am, you need to. Leave. I already know everything. It's yeah. all in this book. Like, but <laughs> let, let me tell you. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. I, uh, let me know what you guys think, and thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening to me rant for always a long time. <laughs> like that was just crazy. And uh, we're excited to uh, bring you another case next week. It's going to be good. It's good. It'll be a little surprise. Mm, We don't Don't know what it's going to be. Surprise. I'm just kidding. We've got everything planned. We know what it's going to be. It's just going to be a little surprise for you guys. Mm -hmm. It's going to be good. It'll be good. good. It's going to (laughs) suck. That's going to be good. So if you, again, want to join our our really cool, cult of cool, awesome people and join our Patreon, Mm -hmm. go to patreon.com slash how to not get killed. Be cool. Sign up. We'll love you. You'll love us. It's going to be great. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. Whatever your thoughts and all that good stuff is. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> to how to not get killed at gmail.com. If you want to like chat with us like on like our DMs or on our posts and yeah, stuff. Yeah, send Instagram, us a message. Say yeah, hi. Just message us. Just, just come chat with us. It's fun. We like it. It's great. It's a good time. At how to not get killed. That's on Instagram. That's that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it, guys. All right. Yeah. We'll see you losers later. Yeah. That, that's your thing. That's your thing. <laughs> oh, is that my thing? I just decided that felt natural. That's your thing. <laughs> Perfect. See you losers see later. See you losers. Keep it sleazy. <laughs> We're out. <laughs>